Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome back to another episode of TV Show and Tell, the podcast about how and why TV gets made. I'm David Bodicombe. I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scruggy. I'm an international format consultant known as the Format Doctor, based in the UK. And today we're revealing some of the behind-the-scenes aspects of the TV industry. We'll be looking at how TV formats get bought and sold around the world. We'll demonstrate some of the difficulties of writing even the most basic of quiz questions. And our special guest today is Olivia van der Werf, who is an important presence behind the scenes on many UK game quiz and competition shows. But first, it's time for the catch-up of news tidbits that have piqued our interest. So what's new with you, Justin? So I'm enjoying the Great Cookbook Challenge on Channel 4. This is a new Jamie Oliver-fronted show where budding cookbook authors compete to win a deal with a with a publisher, with Penguin, in order to get their cookbook on the shelves. The challenge for the contestants is not only to demonstrate their recipes, therefore, but also to find that fine line between creating something that's going to impress the judges and creating something that people can make at home. So one of the most common criticisms from the judges so far is that people are too chefy. <laughs> Uh, which makes me laugh. And uh, Jimmy Oliver said that this might be one of the last times he works exclusively with Channel 4 and he's open to other channels. So it'd be interesting mm-hmm. to see what other projects he'll do elsewhere. Yeah. And one of the things about Jamie Oliver is that a lot of his television series that go along with the cookbook are actually filmed backwards. You start with a cake and then you end up with eggs and flour at the beginning. No, but you start with the you start with the book and all the work and all the photography that's done for the book, and then you go back and film the television series. Oh, I see. Um, which is a bit weird when it's my food travels in Italy or something like that. Um, <laughs> Does he have to like ride his scooter backwards from like Pisa to Rome? <laughs> but I think they've done a wise decision that Jamie Oliver is not one of the judges. But he is one of the world's preeminent cookbook writers, and therefore he's able to sit in this fairly amiable position, which is which is his sweet spot. Charlie Brooker, the creator of the dystopian sci-fi series Black Mirror, is coming out with an interactive cartoon called Cat Burglar, and it's done in the style of the old Tex Avery cartoons. It's uh, interactive in the same way that his um, previous Black Mirror episode Bandersnatch was, in that you can choose uh, which of various outcomes to follow, uh, so that as you play through the cartoon, everybody will get a, a slightly different episode. This is not necessarily a new idea. Uh, those of us in the, who remember the early days of computers and arcade games will remember a, a thing called Dragon's Lair, which was created by Don Bluth, uh, which was an arcade game in the style of uh, Disney cartoons um, where you had to control uh, a knight storming a castle. The graphics were fantastic because they were all pre-rendered on, on LaserDisc, of all things. Wow. And it would just jump to the right chapter in the LaserDisc to to show you the next few cells of the animation. 
BBC Three is adding a new addition to the MasterChef universe with Young MasterChef, which uh, I think sits between Junior MasterChef and MasterChef, and Ma- but not MasterChef the Professionals. I don't know. So they have decided that a 32-year-old format is exactly what the channel needs to lure 18-year-olds away <laughs> from TikTok and YouTube onto the revamped terrestrial channel. I have to say, MasterChef is pretty much the only terrestrial TV program that my 10-year-old daughter watches. It's the only thing that we really have in common is, is, a, is a shared love of MasterChef, mm-hmm. <laughs> as far as TV goes, anyway. Well, that's a, fair, that's a fair point, but I always have an issue with what age watches what age contestants. Um, I think there's always been this thing in television hierarchy with the idea that if you put 18-year-olds on television, then 18-year-olds watch it. Uh, Or if you put 12-year-olds on, that 12-year-olds watch it. My experience has been that things tend to age up so that the viewers of kids tend to be younger by about four or five years, the call viewers, than the kids that are taking part on screen. Being a puzzle author myself, I was interested to see that, um, you know, this Wordle puzzle craze. Oh, yes. Well, someone's decided to make a game show out of it, Justin. Uh-huh. It's called Lingo. What? Yeah, I'm, I'm being ironic, of course. Oh, right. okay. um, so, <laughs> uh, so, yes, Lingo is actually an old idea that was first created by Ralph Andrews. dates back to 1987. And the first one was hosted by Michael Reagan. Do you know who Michael Reagan is? No. He was Ronald Reagan's son, of oh, all people. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know that. And then it was later uh, rebooted for the Game Show Network. Yes, so they, they're bringing back uh, Lingo uh, off the back of the Wordle craze with RuPaul hosting. And it, I think they're actually using the UK format and, and set, uh, but the show is going to be filmed for CBS. All oh, right. Can I just say that to all my various social media friends, I'm delighted that you're enjoying Wordle and I don't care what your score is. <laughs> so please stop telling me. What, even if I've got it after two lines, Justin? Even that. Even that. <laughs> And now it's time for our interview with Olivia van der Werf about her behind-the-scenes work as an adjudicator on TV competition programmes. And Olivia joins us now. Olivia, welcome to TV Show and Tell. Thank you very much. Hello. So how did you segue from being what I believe was a compliance lawyer into adjudicating game shows? I actually, um, I was a family lawyer. I was a litigator. Um, And although I had done a fair bit of compliance when I was training, and I was between jobs, and a friend of mine, I lived then in Bristol, and a friend of mine got in touch, and she was responsible for uh, creating some studios in Bristol um, for Endemol West. And she got in touch um, and said, you're a lawyer, what are you doing for the next three weeks? Um, and it transpired that they were just about to start recording Deal or No Deal for the very first time. And wow. they needed somebody to put the money in the boxes. And so that was my introduction, really, into television and into adjudicating. Um, so I spent three weeks sticking bits of Velcro in boxes representing money, because obviously... Deal or no deal, the whole point of the adjudicator was that somebody needed 
to be the only person who knew where the money was, um, which was me. And then it grew into wider compliance advice and how to make shows fairly. So I think the next show that I did was Krypton Factor, the reboot of Krypton Factor. Oh, I have. I I actually did some of the intelligence games for that. Did you? <laughs> so so we worked together without knowing without... it all that time ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a very long time ago. I think that's probably about sixteen years ago. It was. Um, it was. I actually uh, sent those games designs across from the Philippines when I was on my honeymoon. So oh, I, can, wow. I can tell you. Exactly. I can tell you that, that we, the production was two two thousand and eight. Time for another reboot. It is, isn't it? That's a great show. <laughs> So those games that you designed were exactly where it's useful having an adjudicator because the games are great, but if you have to stop recording for any reason or if something goes wrong, then you need a pair of eyes to help work out how to pick that up smoothly and fairly from the point of view of the contestants. Um, And then adjudicating increasingly became a thing, which it really hadn't been very much in game shows up until that point. Because I was going to say, it's sort of almost like a cottage industry that you've almost grown yourself. There's not many other people that do it. Why do you think increasingly it's become something that producers have incorporated as part of their production processes? When I started, other than deal or no deal, the only time an adjudicator was used was for phone votes. And they were referred to as verifiers then. So if you had, um, obviously we had a lot of issues with shows that didn't run phone votes properly. Um, And then there was a a big old hoo-ha and people started verifying phone votes because they had to. And from that point on, it was a very slow burn. And I what I discovered was that, you know, I loved adjudicating. It it tapped into a bit of my brain that, um, you know, I I think I'm, I'm pretty good at it and I can see what's coming. And I really enjoyed it because it's a fun industry a lot of the time. And so I um, I knocked on doors quite a lot and I started off by saying to people, have you thought about having an adjudicator? And then it grew. And I think what happened was that producers who knew, because as you know, telly is freelance and people move around. And so people who worked on with me on Krypton Factor and thought that was useful, then went to other production companies that made game shows. And I would get calls from people saying, we worked with you on this and we think you'd be helpful. And it gradually grew. But at the beginning, there was a fair bit of resistance. And, you know, people used to say to me, um, you get in the way of making good television. And now the producers who worked with me understand that my mission is to help them make good television without the wrong sort of drama. And I these days, I don't have to brace myself when I go to a new show preparing to be resisted. Um, because I'm working with people that know it's useful. Because you could argue that, let's say, back in the day, producers were able to give away up to a million pounds on who wants to be a millionaire. Th- those producers who worked in that era might sort of go, well, you know, we managed okay without, so why do we need one now? Completely. And a lot of people, I mean, I think millionaire, I, th- I don't know the very early days, but it was an insured prize. Uh, it certainly has been more recently. And so there was a loss adjuster. So that. That makes a difference, but it's not the same as an adjudicator. And I quite often work side by side with loss adjusters. But yes, I think the view very much was we we don't need you. We've done it without you for a long time. And so um, we're going to carry on. And, you know, a lot of producers 
have a total commitment to fairness. It's not because they want to behave badly, but they do just think that I'll be an irritation and will get in the way. Um, and then they work with me and discover how incredibly user-friendly and pleasant I am to have around. <laughs> just to fill in a bit on uh, Millionaire, the original series, the creators remortgaged their houses. Wow, that's brave. To cover the prize. And also, I think, I, I believe that after the first series, they became very aware that they needed to protect the questions. So the questions were put into the computer and the computer was in a locked room and nobody had access to it. Mm. That's interesting because it's not just about security of the questions. It's about, you know, the audience reacting at a point when it isn't within the game for them to react or a host inadvertently saying something that steers contestants. Mm. And that's all the sort of stuff that I would pick up on. But a loss adjuster might not, because much as loss adjusters will say in the nicest possible way that they're there for fairness, they're there to protect the prize. Whereas I'm there to make sure that things are fair and consistent and that every contestant is treated the same and that nobody is influencing the outcome. I work alongside loss adjusters on Limitless Win. There was a loss adjuster and there was me. And that was that worked really well. And we did have slightly different takes. As well as providing a service to producers, you're also there to, to help the contestants. So how do you sort of help reassure them? So my role, as I see it, is to ensure that everything runs fairly. And that helps producers because if things don't run fairly, it gives them a problem. But obviously for the, for the contestant, it's really important that everything is, is run fairly and properly. So I am categorically not on anybody's side. I'm there to make sure that the outcome is fair. Now, a lot of that involves working with producers to make sure that they have everything in place that they need to have, that they've thought about the rules and they've thought about everything that goes into the game that people might be playing. But when we are recording, when we are briefing contestants, when we're deciding what to do if things have gone wrong, all I care about is fairness. And if that means a difficult conversation with a producer, then that's what it means. Um, and equally, if that means a difficult conversation with a contestant, but what if the contestants sort of go, well, yeah, but actually you're being paid by the producer? Uh, yes, I mean, that is that's a comp- that is an argument that is made. And so I, I work for lots of different production companies, for lots of different broadcasters, and I am only as credible as my reputation. And so if producers could book me knowing that I would let them do what they wanted, protect their prize, only have an interest in viewing figures, whatever else might be motivating them, then I would quickly lose credibility. You talked a bit about your role in the studio, but how early in the process do you get involved when someone says, hey, I've got a new quiz show I'm developing? It varies wildly and um, it makes quite a difference. So sometimes people get in touch before commission and will say, we've had this idea, do you think it will work? Um, and what will we need to make it work? So the opposite of that is when somebody gets in touch and says, we're in studio next week, uh, this is the first record day, uh, you know, we'd like you there. And what that means is that I then look at the rules and we'll flag things that maybe nobody has thought about before. Um, it might be that they haven't thought about um, timed rounds and whether that's going to be something that's helpful, whether they've got computers, whether they need computers whether they've got cameras on, what they need to have cameras on. And then I turn up in studio and say, this doesn't work for X, Y and Z reasons. And then I'm really annoying to have around. And I, I, 
I hate that way of being booked because what I want to do is to turn up when it's been really carefully planned and then we can all work together to make a really good fair show. These days, I know many more people who will get in touch much earlier because they don't think I'm going to be um, as annoying as they used to. And that works really well. So I know that you cover a whole range of different things. What are the most common issues that you come in to deal with? That's a really tricky question because they vary on every show. Um, so there are there are themes on every show. So if you have a show, you might have a show with lots of big physical games. Um, and I, you know, people will think I'm really odd and I'll walk around a, a set, you know, kicking the carpet and seeing if something somebody's got to climb up is is going to be uh, slippery or uh, just something really tiny. So as an example, there was a show um, a few years ago called Go For It. Stephen Mulhern um, and people who had skills of some sort being challenged. And then we had a guy uh, who could pogo amazingly well. And the challenge he was given was to uh, pogo around a set, moving water from one container to another container. <laughs> and um, it was a brilliant show. We had a massive audience. It was a lot of fun. And the set had been built for him to do this. And he he started pogoing and um, he was doing really well. And then he fell off his pogo stick. And everyone in the gallery leapt to their feet and shouted, fail, because that needed to cue all the sounds and the lighting and everything else that needed to happen. And I leapt to my feet and slightly less glamorously shouted, the carpet's come loose. <laughs> and he'd fallen off his pogo stick because the carpet had backed back. Um, now, if no one had noticed that, they would have lost that whole game because they'd got to the edit, they'd have seen that and that you couldn't put that out because the guy hadn't had a fair crack of the whip. As it was, we could nail down the carpet and do it again. So those are really common themes on big physical shows. Um, on quiz shows, it tends to be, there's two main issues, oh, there's not two main issues, there's lots of issues, but it tends to be timing issues on timed rounds. There's a multitude of different problems you can have. And then another issue that comes up a lot is when you have questions that uh, contestants can discuss the answer. There's no time limit and they can chat through the answer. And it's hard for a host not to inadvertently steer them or for an audience not to react. And they're quite difficult to, to manage. Um, and, and it's also hard for producers to hold their nerves. So if a contestant has misunderstood a question and they're chatting through it and they the contestant is steering themselves in the wrong direction. I've been on shows where producers have said they've misunderstood the question. We absolutely need to explain it to them. And I have said, no, it's not a trick question. If you help them, you're going to have to help every other contestant. You have to let this play out. I imagine also one thing that comes up quite a lot is those sort of really tricky split-second decisions. Uh, they are incredibly close. So the chase is a really good example of that. Um, when the chase um, got going, um, the rule we agreed on was that somebody had to start speaking before the clock got to zero in a timed round. And in the final chase, when the chaser is really going for it to try to catch the contestants, they're going at a hell of a pace and the timing can come down absolutely to the wire and we on that show we now have a system with the EBS where we can watch it frame by frame with sound to see 
if they have started to speak. And we had one quite recently where it was very, very close. And Dara had, at the key moment where the clock got to zero, Dara had started to open his mouth, but no sound was coming out of it. So, I mean, it's so close. And we take uh, on that show, I mean, the chase, the commitment to fairness is immense. Um, and, you know, we really take trouble to make sure that that is done properly because it matters. And, you know, you have people at home with their stopwatches saying, you know, I timed it and you're wrong. And it's it's so, so carefully done. But you don't always have the technology in place um, for that level of scrutiny. And so it's sometimes there are some shows that, you know, if they're a short show and I will say to people, this is what you need. And um, producers will say, oh, come on, you know, we can watch it back, but um, we might not watch it back that with that level of detail. But you really do need to be able to, to scrutinise it that much. What about when you have a situation where um, something's being presented as a game of skill um, and when you look at it, it's a game of chance? Um, when Tipping Point started, there were discussions about whether or not that was going to be um, enough skill. And actually, the thing that helps you out in that is that you have questions and that um, that's where, where the skill comes in. Um, and actually, on Tipping Point with the machine, there is, you know, you can't just hit the button randomly. You do have to uh, work quite hard at where you hit the button. So there's a definite element of skill to that as well. It does come up. It's something everyone's very aware of. Um, and generally it works where you've got a, where, you know, where you've got a game of some sort and the way to make it to ensure that there is skill is to have questions as well. Um, because obviously, um, you know, you don't want to get into the realms of gambling, um, which is and lotteries, which is where that all becomes a problem. But um, I have had conversations with producers in the past who've said, we think this might be an issue. And so we might make it abroad, which uh, used to be a solution. I don't know whether that still is a solution and it doesn't feel quite right. Um, so I'm not aware of it ever having happened because people just add in a layer of skill and then it's not um, not an issue. They're talking of, a, of abroad. When we watch uh, game shows and things coming from America, it always seems as if there's uh, a, a load of provisos added uh, on the credits to say, you know, the judge's decision is final. In other words, the production has already legally taken the position that anything they say goes. Is, is that true? Um, or is actually the states equally as obsessed with fairness as we are? That's really interesting. So in the States, they um, they don't appoint adjudicators like me. They um, they have to have people there scrutinising them. Um, you know, federal law requires that lawyers are there scrutinising what goes on. But anecdotally, what I have heard is that the people who ostensibly are doing what I do in the States take um, take a very long time to do it. And um, I'm very conscious that, you know, I have systems and precedents that I work to. So I'm not reinventing the wheel every time because I can be consistent. Whereas I gather in the States, recording shows takes a very, very long time and lawyers spend a lot of time pontificating. I think they have got a good commitment to fairness. Although, again, anecdotally, I hear when people come back from working there and they say, you know, it just just didn't feel the same as here. There are different um, priorities um, and it's, it's done differently. Mm-hmm. 
and we'll have more from Olivia later. But now it's time for our Beginner's Guide to Markets. Buying and selling program ideas is a multi-billion dollar industry worth somewhere between three and six billion dollars a year, depending on whose figures you believe. But where and when does it happen and who does it? Well, I'm luckily joined by Justin, who's a, a veteran of such things. So Justin, in sort of like two or three sentences, on a day-to-day level, what actually happens at these markets? How do the deals get done? Okay, so there are markets spread across the year in different parts of the world. And primarily what buyers are doing when they go to these markets is they're looking for finished programming. So they're looking for stuff that's already been filmed, whole series, whole seasons or multiple seasons. They have slots on their channels and networks that they want to fill and budget and a target audience. And they go to markets and they sit there while they are visited by people who are selling, distributors largely, who are selling mostly finished programs. And what are the main markets that happen throughout the year? So the two European markets largely are take place in Cannes. They're called MIP TV, which happens in the spring, and MIPCOM, which happens in the autumn, which are largely the same thing, though they used to be different back in the day, but uh, hence the slightly different names. Uh, and all of that takes place in exactly the same environment as the Cannes Film Festival, which we see as this very glamorous event, but the film festival is this, is exactly the same thing. It's selling finished content and the stars are there to promote and help sell their films. And in the same way, uh, the television industry takes place in the same space. It's quite funny when you when I watch the film festival because it's like, I know this place. I know that restaurant. I know that beach. You know, it's all, we all <laughs> go to the, we all just go at a different time of year. So we all think it's our place. Um, so those are the two European ones. Then there's Natpi which takes place in Miami, usually at the beginning of the year in January, which is both Americas largely. So it's Latin America and North America. But it's a great place to go to connect with a huge Latin American market. There's Real Screen, which takes place in America as well. I, I can't say quite where because it keeps changing because of COVID. Um, that's more non-fiction it's more reality and documentary and finally uh, of the big five that there's atf the asian television forum which takes place in singapore and that's the big uh, place where east meets west in terms of finding content uh, both in the east and the west to to travel from one to the other are these markets things that are suitable for an individual to go to if i'm somebody that's got my own television idea can i just sort of rock up to this and, and try and sell my idea well, it's hard. I mean, first of all, the vast majority of the meetings are booked several weeks in advance. So if you don't get a meeting, you can't really get in to see somebody. They all require registration, so they're quite expensive to attend. And as I said said earlier, whilst I do go to these markets with ideas and with formats that are on paper and so on, and it is true that paper formats do get bought and sold at these markets, um, it's hard because the majority of people are looking to say, oh, I like the show. How did it do? What were the ratings? What were the target audience? Da, 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 da. And you can't give that information if it's still on paper, if it's still in development. <laughs> um, what you do do is you meet a lot of other producers there and creators there, uh, depending on which market it is. And so it's an opportunity to find co-development 
where basically you join up with other producers, other production companies, and share the idea and share the costs, share the IP, and then pitch it in more than one country. Do you even need to go onto the main market floor, though? Because you and I both know that there are some people that just go to the general area to network and get invited to drinks parties on, on yachts and things like that but don't actually go into any of the booths. Well, that used to be the case. These things are considerably more policed these days. <laughs> um, and most of the hotels and places where you would meet those people, they have people on the door who want to see your delegate's badge, and if you don't show it, you can't get in. There was a, a period when some of the American, big American networks decided to take a whole floor in a, in a hotel and say, well, just come and see us here. And that was frowned on and shut down pretty pretty rapidly so yes you can but i think increasingly i think the problem is that the people that are there from the buyers are people who are there to buy finished programs and the people who are there from the sellers are there to sell things that already exist so in a way you're not if you've got an idea you're not really in the right space I think it's interesting to draw the parallel between a market and a festival. Yeah. So, for example, you have something like they say that the Edinburgh Television Festival, and I think that might be more if if people are looking for a place to rub shoulders with program makers, um, that's the sort of place where perhaps that might happen. I do believe that anyone who wants to create a TV format should attend one of these markets at least once. Because having an understanding about the other end of the process, I think, is incredibly important to the development of a format. I remember going to my first market and somebody introduced me to somebody else and they said, oh, this is Justin. He does content. <laughs> and I was really offended. It's like, really, is that my whole career is reduced to he does content? But I came to understand that content however incredibly important it is it's only one part of the ecosystem i've sat now with the sales team at warner brothers who whose job was to go to the market and sell my show and again it was fascinating the kind of questions they asked and the information they needed to sell a show was so different to what you might say to a commissioning editor when you're trying to get it made clarity simplicity uh, hooks if you can build those things into your format from the get-go, if you understand what it is, if you can imagine when you're creating a show, somebody sitting in a booth having four or five minutes to sell your show, then it's it's a really good object lesson in, in, in getting your show clear and precise and grabby right from the start. And finally, what's the, the funniest or the weirdest thing you've seen happen at a TV market? <laughs> Uh, well, you see a lot of shows who, who do stunts in order to uh, uh, get attention and to make people come to their booths. A colleague of mine was doing a show which involved Father Christmas, and so he was running around Cannes in the heat, dressed up as uh, Santa Claus, which was quite funny to see. I got dragged into a, a photo shoot with the Power Rangers once, um, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is very strange. Um and I also went there pitching a show with with uh, Gene Simmons, which was just just generally fascinating to see the uh, the effect he had on everybody who walked into the room. He had an enormous sort of magnetic presence. I didn't know he was one of the Power Rangers either. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope that gives you some insight into the workings of 
a side of the TV industry that perhaps you didn't know about. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover, do get in touch with us. Our Twitter handle is at TV Show Podcast. Now we're going back for the rest of our interview with Olivia van der Werf. There have been a few uh, cases reported uh, recently where the view from outside is that celebrities playing games for charity um, have been given a slightly easier pass. Is that something that you've come across or is that something that you warn against when you're working with a, particularly on a show which normally is played by civilians um, and is now played uh, by celebrities? Yes. So this is really interesting. So you're right. There's a distinction between shows that are only paid by celebrities because I never get booked for those because they are generally um, celebrities having fun and they don't need me there. But where you have shows that are um, played by both members of the public and celebrities, it's really important, I think, to maintain consistency. So recently, for example, I worked on a series of Catchpoint that was exclusively celebrities for the whole thing. And um, we stuck to exactly the same systems and exactly the same protocols. And it was run totally scrupulously fairly. And the same thing goes for Celebrity Chase, for Beat the Chasers. The difference is the style of the questions. For a celeb show, you get show-busy Saturday night questions because you are appealing potentially to a slightly different audience. You want the host to maybe have a little bit more fun with them. There's all sorts of reasons for that. But if it is a show that would usually have me and that has me, it's exactly the same. There can be a feeling, I think, that it matters less if it's celebrities. But at the end of the day, it is money and the charity's mind and the viewer's mind. Much as the celebrities often do not give two hoots. And I meet celebrities on celebrity show, on celebrity versions of shows, and will explain why I'm there. And, you know, half of them are really pleased because they're really competitive. And half of them really don't care. They're there to have fun and maybe win some money for charity. But they're broadly there to just look good on telly and have a laugh and all the rest of it. And so with them, I feel faintly ridiculous, but I don't care because I'm there to do a job and to make sure that that viewers know that it's being done properly. Um, But I suspect that there are shows where everyone absolutely thinks, you know, the gloves are off, it's celebs, uh, we'll, we'll crack on and make some really fun telly and we won't worry too much about it. And if, if there's no money involved, that's obviously completely fine. If there's money involved, I think it matters. And I think it really matters for viewers. Oh, let me rephrase that. It really matters for some viewers. Some viewers don't care, but some viewers really passionately mind. But I think there's another issue that plays into this, which is about fairness and the perception of fairness. And you can have a show that is scrupulously fair, but that people that maybe doesn't look fair. So sometimes that might just be because the questions are show busy and the viewers at home who are used to watching five o'clock versions of that show and they're tough questions think these are easy. But they're not actually because they just require you to have a different set of, of, of knowledge. But more interestingly, there are shows where they are re- run really properly. But because there's one line in the script missed or one key moment not referred to, 
it undermines whether the show is fair, which can be a real shame. And I see part of my role as flagging those moments to producers and saying, do you know, if you just had a line that said, this has been randomly decided, or, you know, we predetermined this amount of money and it's sealed away and nobody knows, that that, that mm. can, I think, really help a show. And sometimes you're role is actually sometimes on screen on things like child genius for example uh, was that something you found comfortable i was always really keen not to be on screen because i thought that it would undermine the the sort of gravitas is the wrong word but i think it's a, a serious role and i don't want it to be a role that looks that looks silly or looks undermined and i thought being on, on camera might be unwise and then Child Genius happened and I advised on all, for the first series, I advised on all the rules and all the prep. And then they were in studio and a colleague of mine went because I was pretty already booked on something else. And she was adamant she wasn't going to be on camera. And that's how that first series was made. Then we got to the second series and they said to me, that role has to be on camera. And if it's not you, it will be someone else. And I thought, well, I can't have somebody else on camera as the independent adjudicator because that would be a bad thing. And so I said really reluctantly, yes. And it took me a few years to sort of uh, find my feet on that because it's hard because and that was a tough show to adjudicate. For, you know, firstly, because the the questions were almost unreadable, never mind everything else that goes with time drains. <laughs> um, and, and the scrutiny from the parents was immense, you know, sitting on that panel, you know, you've got a couple of hundred parents' eyes boring into the back of your head <laughs> trying to work out if you've done something awful to their child. Um, and, and then lots of emotions as well. Massive emotions and very young children who you you really want to look after and make sure that they are enjoying it. But also, if something goes wrong from a fairness point of view, you know, we were showing everything on camera. We were really straightforward. But I wanted the producers, when they got to the edit, to have what they needed to, to show properly what had been done. And so every time I was speaking to a parent, I was thinking, is this going to work for the edit? Have I said the sentence that you need? Or actually, did the parent talk over me at that moment? Am I going to say it again? And the parent's going to think I'm a bit of a loon. But at least I have have said exactly what's needed. Um, it was really, really hard. And actually, because it was really, really hard, I loved it because I really had to think and constantly, you know, worrying about whether Richard had managed to pronounce some utterly unpronounceable word correct because he's reading at speed and it's a really big ask and whether the child has answered with the right pronunciation whether somebody's phone going off at the back of the room has made a difference and whether the buzzer has worked properly. My brain was split in about 15 different directions and it was it was really challenging, but it was a huge amount of fun as a result. And the kids were lovely and the parents in the main were also lovely and it was a lovely team. So I, I, I love that show. So in terms of being on camera, um, my experience generally is quite often producers will appear and say, we've got this great idea for a show. and We think having the independent adjudicator on camera will be brilliant and fun and hilarious. And then they drill down to the detail and maybe do a pilot. And then they look at it and think, God, actually, really fairness, you know, it's a thing, but it doesn't make brilliant telly. And they and they reverse out of that, which is a good thing. 
Now, one thing that your company helped to provide as a national service during COVID was to ensure that Britain still had cake. <laughs> tell, tell us about that. Yes. So in addition to the um, to adjudicating, we also provide um, health and safety to um, a range of production companies and um, bake off. You know, it was in a really easy rhythm. I I would go and have a, a look around the set and make sure that everything was, you know, set up smoothly. But it was, it was a nice, it was a nice job. It came back every year, but it wasn't, it wasn't a huge amount of work. And then lockdown happened, and game shows just stopped, as you know. Uh, and I sat at home wondering, you know, what I was going to do about health and safety. But at that stage, we had no industry protocols, and it didn't feel as though it was safe for anyone to step foot outside their front doors. Um, and then the uh, managing director of Love um, got in touch, um, Letty, and said, what do you think about Bake Off in a Bubble? And there were no industry protocols. There were no safe working guidelines, really. Nothing, none of that had come out. And so I found myself you know, reading papers from Harvard about whether or not it was airborne and what the likelihood was of people catching COVID when they put fuel in their cars and um and it was it was immense um and we had a massive testing program for everyone who was involved everyone had to properly isolate for I think from memory it was about 12 days before they traveled to location if they had a long journey they had to isolate near the location the, I mean, the commitment by love was pretty extraordinary what they put in place um we started planning it properly in about mid-May and then by mid-June everyone who was going to go into the bubble was isolating and really um, about halfway through that process Letty said um, we need somebody to go in and, and be on top of Covid in there and I said I'll have to think about who that will be thinking there is no <laughs> way you're getting me <laughs> to do that and somehow it just felt like the right thing to do so I ended up being in the first Bake Off bubble, um, I think it was seven weeks. And we, you know, we moved the whole, the crew, the contestants, um, the presenters, all sorts of support staff, the hotel staff had to isolate too. And we got everyone in over the course of a couple of days and we shut the gates, pretty much barricaded the gates. And that was it. We were in there with um, chaperones and people looking after dogs. I mean, it was <laughs> extraordinary. Um, and they made a fantastic series. I don't know whether it was heaven or hell to be trapped in a bubble with cake for seven weeks. It's like <laughs> I imagine it's quite fun for the first week or two, and then after after a while, you're sort of going, "Oh, not lemon drizzle for tea again." <laughs> but you know, I really early on, I promised myself that I wasn't going to eat any of the cake because I thought once I went down that road, it would be <laughs> it would be a bad plan. So uh, I didn't actually eat any cake. I I was really I was really disciplined um, because. You know, you're surrounded by cake because not only did we have the cakes that you saw, but we had on down days, we had lots of, we had test kitchens for the contestants to practice in. And my bedroom um, opened straight out looking at those test kitchens. So really, at any time, I could have wandered over and uh, checked out whatever cake was going on. I mean, that's just a <laughs> really dubious path to go down. So I avoided the cake. Well, that's very, it's a very disciplined of you. But <laughs> if, there's, if if there is any spare gatto, then by all means, uh, send it your way. We'll, 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 we'll give it. To, we'll give Justin my my address later. <laughs> 
Um, well, uh, you'll be back for the show and tell segment later. But for now, Olivia, uh, thanks very much for being on uh, TV Show and Tell. Thanks very much. And Olivia will be back for our show and tell segment at the end of the show. But now it's time for a quiz. But it's not any ordinary quiz, because these questions have been designed to show just how difficult it is to write even the most basic quiz questions. So I'm going to need a contestant for this quiz. Ah, here's a suitable candidate. Your name? Justin Scruggy. Occupation? Television consultant. Specialised subject? Difficult quiz questions. You have two minutes on your chosen specialised subject, starting now. What's the capital of Portugal? Lisbon. Actually, it doesn't have one. Uh, Lisbon, London, Paris, Bern, and uh, New Zealand's Wellington actually have no legal designation, Uh um, strangely, uh, which I only learnt fairly recently. With which country does France share its longest land border? Switzerland. It's actually Brazil. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yes. Uh, This is because French Guiana is treated as an integral part of France. The border between Brazil and French Guiana is the longest land border on French territory, strangely. Which is heavier, a pound of gold or a pound of feathers? Neither. You would think that they're both the same. (laughs) However, gold is measured using the troy system, and a troy pound is only 373 grams, whereas the standard avoirdupois pound is 453 grams. So technically, a pound of feathers is actually a bit heavier. This whole quiz is set up for me to fail, isn't it? The questions are there to be answered. (laughs) In which museum does Edvard Munch's painting The Scream hang? Well, now, I know there are multiple versions of The Scream. Okay, I'll give you partial credit for that. Um, So I would say at least one of them is the Reich Museum in in Amsterdam. Yes, you're right. There's two painted ones and two pastel ones. Mm. Of the painted ones, one's in the Oslo's National Gallery and the other is in the Monk Museum itself. Right. This is an example of you know being aware of alternative answers. Right. They, mm. they can often um, crop up. I think my favourite one of this type of question, which you'd think would be absolutely unique, is um, in the Dennis the Menace cartoon strip, first published on the 12th of March, 1951 what was the name of dennis's dog right and presumably it wasn't nasher well so in the uk we know it as nasher but in the us you will know that there's also a dennis the menace cartoon Mm. and by complete coincidence the first edition of the comic that was published there was on the 12th of march 1951 as well quite by coincidence so uh, for them it it would be rough mitchell is the name (laughs) of the dog (laughs) i could just imagine giving that answer rough mitchell and just bradley walsh freezing presumably this is the moment where olivia walks on and trying tries to calm things down (laughs) yeah that's true (laughs) but now olivia van der werf has something to show and tell us 
So, Olivia, uh, what item have you got to show and tell us? The item that I have got to show and tell you about is a bag of ping pong balls, um, which is right. not terribly sophisticated, but is uh, a spectacularly useful part of my job because so many shows depend on randomness, random allocation of order of play, random allocation of questions. Getting a computer to generate something random uh, is more complicated than it sounds. As you know, David, randomness is a, is a peculiar thing. Uh, things often are random but don't look random, but that's the nature of randomness. So ping pong balls are in a bag, you can't really argue with that. And a good example of a time when I have used a bag of ping pong balls was on Red or Black, which was a show uh, 10 or 11 years ago where... We had, I think, 248 people um, randomly whittled down to one person who might or might not randomly win a million pounds. And um, one of the games was to do with the position of parachutists and where they landed on a target and whether they had a red or black parachute on. And we had to make sure that nobody could suggest that the best parachutist with the best aim was given a specific parachute. And to achieve that, I found myself being strapped to the floor of a plane uh, with (laughs) the side open, which just felt all shades of wrong, with a bag of of ping pong balls. Uh, and six blokes with parachutes, uh, and they were all red or black. And they were all numbered, and I randomly pulled balls out of a bag to decide the order in which they would jump out of the plane. Uh, and but like, I, did, did, didn't all the balls like fly out of the bag? Or no, the the the, the bag. I have very good control over my uh, my bag of balls, so um, I uh, I am skilled at that. So I pulled them out randomly. They jumped out, and then uh, we had a winner. But it was a very surreal moment. I remember looking at myself thinking, I'm a lawyer and ostensibly I'm a compliance <laughs> lawyer. And when did life get this peculiar? You didn't sort of like go, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind a divorce case or something. At this point. <laughs> no, <laughs> never. Uh, no, I'm really lucky. I have I have a really fun, I mean, some of the times it's hard, but, but I have a really fun job uh, and really varied. And that was... Uh, that was particularly insane, that moment. That's marvellous. Well, thank you very much for that insight into the wacky world of uh, big pong balls. Uh, Olivia, <laughs> thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much, David and Justin. Thank you for having me. It's been a busy old show, but not so busy that we can't cram in a quick game of fake or format. This week, it's Justin's turn to briefly describe two TV shows. The catch is only one of them is real, and that's the one I have to find. And you can play it along too. All right, Justin, off you go. Okay, so this week I've got two reality shows, and they both involve rappers. <laughs> what, okay. with a W at the front or not? <laughs> no. Okay, so the first one is called Ice Tea Does Country. <laughs> And it's a reality show in which the rapper Ice-T, a.k.a. Tracy Marrow, trades rhymes for rockabilly as he is immersed in the country music scene in small-town Tennessee. Ice-T meets the legend Willie Nelson and pop crossover Miley Cyrus and trains under Miley's dad Billy Ray 
to compete in a local talent show. Blimey. That's called what? Ice, Ice tea? tea Does Country. Right. Okay. Okay. Second one. <clears throat> Second one is called Vanilla Ice Goes Amish. Okay. This is another reality show in which rapper Vanilla Ice, a.k.a. Robert Van Winkle. Now you can see why they changed their names. <laughs> uh, Robert Van Winkle swaps hip-hop for hammers as he is immersed in an Amish community in Ohio. Vanilla, or Mr. Ice, sets out to learn the building techniques and craftsmanship the Amish are known for, joins in a construction project, and offers his own design advice. So, Vanilla Ice goes Amish, or Ice Tea does country. Which is fake and which is a format? Hmm. I'm, I'm not that confident this week. Uh... There's not a lot to choose between them, frankly. Um, I'm just going to have a fairly random guess. I, I can't even put any logic on it. But I think the slightly more outrageous combination of subjects is is the one that probably has got commissioned. So I'm going to say that the format... Is the vanilla ice goes Amish one? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> oh, that's so that's so close. Um, yes, so Ice Tea Does Country uh, has not unfortunately yet been commissioned, but I am available. Vanilla Ice has his own uh, handyman series, actually, or has had, um, and he did indeed uh, spend a series for the DIY Network in 2013 with an Amish community learning about building techniques and craftsmanship and uh, joining them in a construction project. I looked this up on one of those sort of parental sites, which I I just found this lovely quote, which says, parental guidance, it's pretty mild, but on occasion the word hell is used and some Amish folk smoke tobacco pipes. <laughs> so that's how controversial it is, <laughs> or how vanilla it is, if you like. Well, that's a wrap for this week. Remember, you can find us on your podcast app of choice and would really appreciate it if you can subscribe, follow, hunt, track, hound or stalk us wherever we pop up on the internet. You can get in touch on Twitter via the handle at TV Show Podcast or email us on contact at tvshowandtell.com. Incidentally, to answer a query we get sometimes, both Justin and I uh, still actively work in the TV industry. If you want to contact me directly, I'm David J. Bodicum on Twitter. And Justin, what's the best way for people to contact you? Best way to contact me is jscroggy, all one word, at theformatpeople.com. So there you have it. There's no excuse to forget to send us a birthday card now. Until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggy. And this has been TV Show and Tell. <laughs> <laughs>